where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and today I am interviewing Dr. Wayne Grudem, who is dis the Distinguished Research Professor of Theology and Biblical Studies. Uh, and Dr. Grudem, you don't know this, but uh, you are also just a, a hero to many of us who have been utilizing your systematic theology textbooks uh, over the years, and your, your thoughts on so many issues uh, your, your biblical reflections have been so helpful. So everybody, uh, today, Dr. Grudem and I are going to be talking about culture, socialism, law, and politics, uh, just three very small uh, <laughs> issues. And um, uh, I, I heard Dr. Grudem recently lecturing at Cedarville University in Ohio, and it reminded me, man, it would be a treat to have him on the show. So thank you, Dr. Grudem, for coming on and speaking with us today. Good to be with you, man, Michael. So um, to kind of frame the conversation, there are a few things that seem to have happened within church culture in the last two years. Uh, first of all, there's there seemed to be a widening gap. There seems to be a, a tremendous amount of division. Um, you can even see it uh, when uh, I was looking at some of the articles that you wrote about, you know, way back in 2016 about voting for Trump or not voting for Trump. And, and what do we do when we're trying to engage in politics? Certainly in right. Canada and in the United States, there's been a tremendous amount of dissension in the church on how we handle authoritarianism. And of course, that kind of leads us to your lecture that you gave at Cedarville on socialism. And so I thought maybe we'd start there and having a discussion on what you're seeing in North America around the popularity of socialism. Well, it concerns me. Um, people first hear, hear about socialism and saying that we'll solve poverty and make uh, income distribution more just and fair for all sorts of people. And equality becomes a driving policy it destroys incentive for um, quality and quantity of work and hinders an economy and it results ultimately in a drive for such equality that uh, it traps everybody in poverty, such as in Cuba or in Russia today, um, in Venezuela. We have failed, failed examples of socialism run to an extreme. Um, Milton Friedman, the University of Chicago economist, said if a nation decides to put equality, he meant equality of income, before freedom, it will get neither. But if it decides to put freedom before equality, it will get both. And I think we see that in the, not in the last few years in the United States, but in the history of the United States. We've grown economically tremendously, but we've had economic freedom and uh, freedom to 
operate in the free market and operate according to supply and demand influences in the market and respond to those appropriately so that um, in a free market supply and demand meet so the amount of goods supplied at any one point meets matches the price that consumers and producers want to agree on and everybody is is better off but when the government controls things the more control we have, the less freedom we have, and the less productivity we have. So it's, it starts out with a good goal, but ends up being harmful to an economy. And this seems Socialism to be, really is a... Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, this seems to be in parallel with so many of the, of, of course, the, the social justice issues where there is this desire to seek justice, and then you add the word, the word social in front of it, and it, it, it changes the... The definitions so you have like you just mentioned uh maybe virtuous goals or or moral goals that end up being perverted into uh, uh state outcomes or authoritarian outcomes the the question i had for you to follow up with that is of course w- why do you perceive that the church is struggling uh to help understand some of the basic uh, supply and demand things you just mentioned, which come out of our, you know, our simple commands in scripture of not stealing, that we've developed property law out of. Um, it, you mentioned in your book, Politics According to the Bible, that uh, it, it's the church's responsibility to influence politics. That's kind of where you land with, uh, with your advice to the church influencing politics. What do you see as a major problem for the – is the church influencing politics? Uh, is the church <laughs> floundering in, in this issue? Um, of course, in the last few years, this has been, been so divisive. It, de- it depends on the church. church. Um, there are churches that have been very active in advocating political viewpoints, both from a leftist or liberal per, uh, political perspective and from a conservative political perspective. Um I went to one church here in the Phoenix area that had uh, Barack Obama campaign material and tributes all over the hallway of the church. And um, I went into another church in Southern California where I spoke, where they were uh, supporting Mitt Romney a few years ago and Donald Trump now recently, and I don't know who this year. Um, so there are some churches that have been active and some churches that have shied away from it. I think it's helpful to know that when you begin to talk about um, economics, it seems abstract and difficult to understand for people, but there's a lot of common sense that is at work that people should be able to understand. The first thing I want to make clear is I think that the Bible's teaching on property is that property belongs to individuals, not to government, by default. That is, ultimately, God owns all the property. The the silver is mine, the gold is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, says the Lord. Uh, The earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So the earth belongs to the Lord. He created it and it belongs to him, but he gives and trusts us. He entrusts property to us as a stewardship. And the command, you shall not steal, 
entrenches in the moral fabric of Israel and then ultimately of the Christian church, the idea of private ownership of property. I should not steal your ox or your donkey or your car or your laptop because it belongs to you. It does not belong to me. So that command you shall not steal assumes private ownership of property. Once that happens, um, people begin to make free exchanges that benefit both parties. Um, my wife had a foot surgery recently and we needed to have a wheelchair for about six weeks. And so I, I bought a wheelchair ramp for, so she could get in our front door. And then I put it on online for sale and a man came and bought it. And he said, do you have anything else for sale? Well, um, I had a backup electric generator cost me $400 or something at Sears a number of years ago. I've never used it. But I said, um, I'd be willing to get rid of that generator. He said, how much? And I just instantly, I said, $80. He said, I'll take it. Now, I didn't want the generator anymore because we were planning to move to a place where we won't need it. He didn't, he wanted the generator more than he wanted his $80. So when we traded the generator for the $80, I was happier. I had $80 that I didn't have before. He was happier. He had a generator that he didn't have before, and he got a $400 generator for $80. We both benefited, and the world was better off by $80 worth of exchange. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, so, that's, it's, it's remarkable. Hey, friends, are you tired of having leftism ram down your throat everywhere you turn? Like you're just exhausted where you go into a business and they want to promote leftist ideas and causes to you all day long. I know I'm tired of this. And, you know, this is why we need to have new buying habits. So why are you buying coffee from companies that hate you and your freedoms? I, I can think of the day that I stopped desiring to support Starbucks. It was two years ago. Well, look, Resistance Coffee is here for you. I was just talking to Nicole in our production studio. She really wants to drink resistance coffee, but she's not yet gone and bought resistance coffee. Well, look, you can enjoy their wonderful taste and their fresh roasted coffee, Nicole, with the knowledge that your money is not funding leftist causes. So in fact, folks, resistance coffee gives 10% of every purchase to organizations that are fighting for constitutional freedoms for Canadians. This is partly why we partnered with resistance. They have been gracious to us from day one. So resistance coffee roasts specialty grade beans, which means you're getting high end quality coffee that's roasted fresh for you. So be done with stale grocery store coffee. Uh, or uh, picking up your $4 uh, coffee cup somewhere else. Support Canadian Freedoms. Go to resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC and join the resistance today. Nicole, go out and buy it today. Stop hesitating. Go online. You can do it. Resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC. Well, and as you're talking about that, I'm also thinking about just uh, the Lord also commanded us to work on six days and rest on the seventh. And so then... Uh of course the the freedom to be able to work and provide for your family uh intermingles with those property laws and intermingles with uh with that benefit that you just said he had $80 to spend because he had worked for it and and saved it and and you know banked it and earned it um i use the word banked lightly there uh he, you know he, he had it in his pocket so right. the, the the individual's freedom to be able to acquire because of work 
is linked towards this prote protection of property. And it's, it, it's so important, as you just said, an $80 exchange is, is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, if I go a little bit further, um, people, and I don't know about Canada, are you experiencing inflation the way we are price inflation? Yes, we are. We are experiencing price inflation. I think, uh, the government's trying to control it right now by the, by the same method. Um, uh, we we also printed uh, billions of dollars. Uh, I I I know that you I know that the U.S. is printing trillions, but we printed billions of dollars uh, out of thin air over the last uh, yeah. two years. So yeah, okay. go ahead. So, so I just heard a great example that helps people understand how government putting more free money in the, into the system drives up prices. And here's the example. Let's say Michael that you have ten apples. And uh, that represents the whole economy. But just let's say you get 10 apples. And I have $10 in my apple budget. How much are apples? $1 an apple. Right. Now, if you have 10 apples and I have $20 in my, uh, suddenly in my apple budget, all of a sudden apples are $20, are uh, $2 an apple. So adding more money to the economy naturally drives up prices. And that's what we're seeing here in the United States, an immense amount of money poured into the economy as COVID stimulus and more stimulus and more recovery money. It's government giving away money that doesn't have, but it prints the money and throws it into the economy, and all of a sudden prices go up. Well, people on fixed incomes or people who don't get huge raises, all of a sudden last year lost 8.3% inflation. That's like losing 8.3% of your income. That's a, and that eight and a third is one twelfth. It's like losing one month of salary in your income. That hurts everybody. It's, it's a destructive, absolutely. harmful tax. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the same the same type of theory goes for minimum wage increases. Just when you when you have a when you have a number of individuals, many of them living within the home of their parents. Uh, uh, right. making so much more pocket money than they used to. It just allows yeah. the, the, the supply and demand prices to fluctuate. Well, again, I don't know if you're experiencing this, but I'm, I'm noticing in uh, fast food restaurants, there are fewer and fewer people there. It's uh, you order on an iPad uh, when you come in the door. And uh, you pick it up at the counter, and all of a sudden, those, that may or may not be a helpful thing in itself, but it means that entry-level jobs are being um, destroyed because it's cheaper to have a computer terminal. Now, I hope these people can get jobs elsewhere, but uh, the, all three of my sons had entry-level jobs in fast food or retail uh, stores, and um, those are good jobs. They're learning jobs, and they, they're not intended to be life support for a whole family. They're intended to be part-time work uh, for uh, uh, entry-level salary. So, well, all right, I'll, I'll stop on that. Yeah, no, it, 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 and actually within, within the Canadian context and, and even in the states that I've been into, um, one of the things that I've discovered is that employers can't find workers for those entry-level jobs. 
because yeah. there's the competition of just making money by staying at home. And so I, I remember coming over the border in the midst of COVID while Canada was still in, in tremendous lockdown. And uh, we uh, fled to the United States for some reprieve uh, in, and went down to Florida. And uh, we went into a Wendy's somewhere in Ohio and the the dining room was closed and we thought oh no we've yeah. walked right back into the into the totalitarianism of Canada where you can't even go into a restaurant <laughs> and i started asking questions about it and the manager said no no we just like everyone's staying at home we just can't find employees to right. manage the dining room right now so right. Yeah, these these theoretical ideas have very practical and and um uh real life consequences one of I the things say about that, Michael. Okay, you go ahead. Yeah, and then I've got a follow-up question. Um, the Bible talks about helping the poor, and there should be no one who's without food or clothing or shelter. We should help those who are in need. But there is no, no teaching in the Bible that it would approve of the idea that people would remain dependent on government handouts for year after year and decade after decade. No... No permanent welfare support for people who are not working. In fact, Paul says in First Thessalonians, "If anyone will not work, let him not eat." Now, there should be some provision for those who are, in some way, handicapped or disabled and unable to support themselves. But that's the that's the minority of a very small minority of people. Most people should be required to work or find job training programs, not depend on government handouts forever. There's no idea in the Bible that people should be dependent on gifting from others for the majority of their years or life. That's just harmful to people's sense of responsibility and sense of meaning and self-respect and harmful to the productivity of the, of the entire nation. I think another uh, aspect to that that people don't realize is that the 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 bigger the government bureaucracy becomes in order to manage programs like that, the more self-serving a government becomes because they're they end up in in the name of ministering to the poor, they end up ministering to themselves to manage the intake and the redistribution of ministering to the poor and redistributing to the poor. So they're, they're stealing from the taxpayer. Then they become deeply entrenched in their own self, uh, preservation. And yeah. all the while the problems still cascade because of course, what scripture teaches us is that we're supposed to be uh, cheerful and joyful givers voluntarily. You know, we, we're supposed right. to give these things of the Lord and take care of, uh, other individuals like the good Samaritan voluntarily as individuals. Yes, I agree, Michael. Um, I think there's a role for government. We, we don't want people starving in our communities. We should have a means to provide, and through government, I think is acceptable, with food, clothing, and shelter, and probably education for job training. But um, there's a moral difference between us giving things voluntarily to help those who are in need, which is morally commendable and the government taking taxes from us. And so we don't give voluntarily, but we give by compulsion. And uh, there's no moral 
well, there's a little moral uh, credit for just paying taxes that you're forced to pay anyway. And so the, the more a country moves toward socialism, the more it moves toward government control of everything that is uh, made and uh, manufactured and distributed, and the more it takes away human freedom and human moral responsibility. Also, you hinted at this. It's the case in socialism that they aim at equality of income for everybody, but then there are some who are more equal than others, and that's those who are in the uh, in the government's in position of power in government. We see that in uh, the former Soviet Union in Russia, for instance. We see it in Cuba, massive amounts of people in poverty, but government officials having great privilege. And um, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm proud of my own country. I love my country, but there are some significant difficulties here. And one of them is that some of the highest income zip codes in the United States are around Washington, D.C., where people working for government have padded their income for years and have jobs that they can't, they can't be fired from. And so um, government tends to acquire more and more power and more and more influence and more and more control. First Samuel 8, Samuel told, warned the people of Israel about the dangers of a king. He will take your sons and daughters and help and make them be his servants and his uh, cooks. And he'll take your, the tenth of your fields. He'll take this, he'll take that, he'll take that. And you should be his slaves. And that happens when government taxes more and more. It takes away our freedom to use our money and decide for ourselves how to use our money. And it takes away more freedom and we become gradually uh, servants of government or ultimately slaves. Okay, so this is the turn in the conversation that I really want to talk to you about. And it's, it is on this – it is exactly on this point. Um, so – it might take me a few minutes to unpack this, but of course, uh, growing up, the most maligned scripture that I can think of was uh, when Jesus was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount and the whole judge not lest ye be judged. And um, over the last two years, we've had that the new text being Romans 13. You know, um, I interview... Uh, Christians. I interview non-Christians. Uh, I'm really trying to utilize my podcast as a way to have uh, good factual discussions. And, and, I, and I talk to a lot of different people. But one of the things that I'm noticing among those who I interview who are non-Christians, of course, they're very familiar with the church's use of Romans 13. Um, and this has been a major controversy. Um, I'm thinking about uh, the reformers and particularly um, the reform way of thinking that uh, the the government uh, is subject not to the church but of but but to the laws of God and that all authority for human society is derived from God and that of course there are limits then on government and how Romans 13 is supposed to be used. And particularly, Dr. Grudem, I want to talk to you, ask you a question. So I've been reading through your book on politics according to the Bible. And I would have to say that, you know, I've been reading it. I've been listening to it. 
and you get a sincere like hurrah like fantastic point from me about you know every 38 minutes as i'm really enjoying the work but even in your book you you hint at the the difficulty of navigating these waters a little bit when you specifically talk about the question of theonomy and so here's my question for you that that's a long setup and here's my yeah. question for you. as i read your book and i read it as you know from from a an evangelical reform perspective that when it comes to the law and the gospel i would tend to uh, describe myself as a theonomist and i read your book and i go this is exactly how i this is exactly how i feel about what we should be doing with politics and using scripture bringing in old and new testament scriptures to apply to these settings um i took an ethics class at gordon conwell when i did my master's there with jack davis and he in his book on ethics he talks about not being able to make general appeals to to justice without making specific um appeals to law you know you can't have one without the other so what what's been really dividing for us is how do we use the word of god and how do we use the law of god in these contexts and it seems to be a pretty big deal within the church and so you've written a book that i 99% of it go wow that's amazing and then like in th three little paragraphs y you seem to distance yourself though from this category of theonomy and I, I just wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. that and why you felt the need to do that is there a history around that name that I am unfamiliar with um like is there an is there a is there like an infighting somewhere going on where that word just the idea of promoting God's law, like using like the direction we our, our structure is influence and our direction is towards God toward. And I'm okay to say towards God's law. What, you know, kind of, how do you think we navigate this conversation? Because you seem to be careful in your book to want to make a distinction there. Okay. I understand theonomy to be the view of government espoused by Russus John Rush Dooney, Gary North, and Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson was actually a, th a classmate of mine at Westminster Seminary. Um, yeah, and you're you're right. That as far as those would be two 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 big influences of mine, but but I have a hard time um, seeing any difference between them and you in your book. Okay. So well, I think this is a difference, and you can correct me if I'm incorrect. They would see the Old Testament laws for civil government for government to be appropriate for governments to adopt today. And so in exchange in Westminster Seminary classroom where Greg Bonson was promoting theonomy and I said to him, well, I, I need to back up. I, I, I'm a Baptist. I believe in believers baptism. And he was a Presbyterian who believed in infant baptism. And I said to him, because he had made a presentation in class on theonomy. I said, Greg, do you think that uh, people who teach false doctrine should be imprisoned? He said, yes. I said, do you think bapt believers baptism is false doctrine? He said, yes. <laughs> so he's going to put me in jail. So okay. 
I, I thought so this is not too, so that's 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 okay. Well, you'd be in jail as well if he takes power, yeah. right? Okay, so what's the mistake? The mistake is confusing the old covenant provisions under the under the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant. Uh, in the old covenant, the government of the people of God, the church, equivalent to the church in the Old Testament, and the government of the civil authority, the civil government, they regulate people's conduct day by day. The civil government and the government of the church were the same. Moses was the head over the people of God and the head over the nation of Israel. Um, in the new covenant, Jesus makes a distinction. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And when they had asked him, that came in response to an answer about a question about whether to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And the implication is, he said, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? And it was Caesar's likeness and Caesar's inscription. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And in other words, pay the tax. It's legitimate. But he separated that from the things that you render to God, which would be our religious conduct. So in the Old Covenant, if you blasphemed against God or taught a false doctrine, you were put to death. In the New Covenant, you simply are excluded from the church. That's different. And I don't think that the government today should, should as the anonymous I've heard advocate, promote the death penalty of all things for homosexuals and promote the death penalty for incorrigible children rebelling against their parents. Those are horrible ideas. They were in the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant was an attempt by the, to show that the law of God, no matter how strict it was, could not could not bring about moral perfection among God's people that needed the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant sense. In the New Covenant, when we choose church leaders, you don't. It doesn't. Say, Paul doesn't say go to your mayor or the city council leader and choose a mayor. And, and he's the head of the church. But there are character qualifications where a man must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, not a drunkard, not given to violence, or other qualifications like that. The civil government is distinct from the government of the church in the New Covenant. And so I don't follow Theonomus, and I'm misunderstanding something. Well, I, I think in this conversation there... Um, there are a number of misconceptions. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as you were just describing that would be, you know, when I understand the word theonomy and, and I do understand that there is obviously different theologians and different voices that are promoting uh, different theological schools or, or theories. But, you know, when we go back to the reformers and we look at the civil use of the law to restrain evil in society, and then when I pick up your book on politics, you seem quite comfortable going back to the Old Testament and the New Testament and to the law of God and to the yeah. and to the stipulations to yes. to call people back to restraining evil in society. So the one thing I would say is like so for example, that whole law about um, uh, capital punishment for the disobedient child. So in the context yeah. of that passage, it's clear that the child is an adult drunkard. Like the, the, the passage itself gives some context to the situation. And so one day I just decided as I was looking up adult child abuse to parents, I just looked up what are the stats on parents 
senior parents being murdered by adult children. So 1% of, of uh, all murders are committed by daughters and 1% of all murders are committed by sons. Um, and I just started investigating the whole concept of parental abu abuse by adult children. And in our modern day courts and our modern day stats, you can find a, a very significant equation between abuse and uh, of the parent with adult abuse of substance abuse. And so it seems to me that there might have been errors. So, so you have that experience with, uh, with Dr. Bonson. And of course, as a Baptist, I would go to you. Yes, I, I certainly don't want a church state run like you know there is a separation of church and state that we are to be calling the state to the laws of god not calling the state to be submissive to uh an ecclesiology like i i we, we don't want a, a bishop or a pope in charge of the government there is a clear okay uh separation of so, power i think try this i think the old testament the, the mosaic covenant is no longer binding on us directly but i do think it contains god's wisdom for human conduct in many ways. So I do use it for many, many ethical teachings. But I would say the difference is we have freedom of religion that we should promote in the new covenant age. Okay. Like th this is a, this is a, just to just cite the type of discourse that I think we need to be having as, as pastors, because I think our people are, are, I think as the divide gets, gets bigger, our people are more and more confused when they say, well, wait, should we be calling the government to submit to God? So Dr. Grudem, you know, you're thinking there when, when you say, um, am I misunderstanding something? I, I always want to know the difference between being covenantally bound and, mm -hmm. and, uh, in being influenced by, because when I, when I read Deuteronomy four, you have the nation of Israel being given this great law that all of the nations are to come and and look at and to rejoice in and to repent of their sin. Right. So it, it seems to me arbitrary in the sense of like none of us were ever covenantally bound to obey the law in the sense of for salvation. We, we, we all know that we're not justified by the law. Right. But like, isn't the entire earth creationally and covenantally bound by the law of God in order to, is that not by which standard that he's going to judge the, the entire world? So I, I'm, whenever we have these conversations about maybe theonomy proper or just the first use of the law, according to the reformers, um, I sometimes wonder if we are creating categories that don't don't exist so like I, I understand like there's both continuity and discontinuity between the old testament and the new testament but the the continuity would be the same standards and and the the same sacrificial f you know faith in god's mercy that i must have the discontinuity is that christ's sacrifice is so much better than the old testament sacrificial system um, okay so, so yeah the um, Mosaic Covenant 
prescribed the death penalty for people who blasphemed God or taught people to follow other gods. I, and it was enforced by the government of Israel. I do not believe that civil governments today, even if they've got 100% of the people in the state or nation professing to be Christians, I don't think the state should execute capital punishment today in the New Covenant age for religious crimes. I believe that over the course of centuries, Christian leaders realized that government compelling of religion is not going to work. That's because faith cannot be compelled. It has to be a voluntary decision on the part of an individual. Parents can bring their children to church and teach them Bible verses and send them to a Christian school, but they can't force them to become Christians. That's an individual decision, a decision that has to be made by decision of the will on the part of the individual. And if, if parents can't even compel their children to be genuine Christian believers, it's sure, surely hopeless for a government to hope it can establish a state church and compel adherence, genuine and heartfelt adherence to the Christian faith and Christian moral teachings um, by force, by government force. So in Christian influence of government I think the first thing that should, I'm quoting Carl Henry now, um, the first thing that Christians should insist on in, 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 in exercising significant influence on government should be freedom of religion. And the government should have a hands-off attitude toward protecting religious freedom for all people, for Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Baptists and Presbyterians and Roman Catholics, etc., or people who believe in no God at all. I don't think government should try to force that or compel it. I, I, I certainly agree with you in in the sense that I, I've I've never get the sense in the Old Testament at all that that the that the Jewish law was compelling people to faith in Yahweh. Uh, was there no religious freedom well, in the nation of Israel? <laughs> Other like I, I know that there were laws about public blasphemy. <laughs> But, yeah, but if you hear that in a city that the people are saying, let's go serve other gods, you're to go and destroy that city. Well, we're not going to march on Salt Lake City. Okay. Like, uh, you you are bringing up the, the one example out of all of the hundreds examples that from your book, I, I would appreciate. So other than trying to figure out whether or not we're misunderstanding each other in the sense of like the, in the, in the, the law thou shalt not have any other gods, you know, you, you shall, you know, the first commandment given to the people was that coercive in nature. Like did, did that compel yeah, every, the difference every, between, like that, that, that's, I'm, I'm, it's an honest question the, as far as the, the, the difference between what is morally, there's a difference between what is morally good and what the government should enforce. I think it's morally right for people to worship the one true God and trust in Jesus as Savior. I think it's right. morally right for people not to blaspheme or take God's name in vain. But I don't think government should enforce those things. So I think the reason why I'm having this conversation with you is I just greatly respect you. And it's hard, I think, for many Christians who would now say, okay, well, you know, we have this replacement ideology, secular socialism. 
that will create its own set of its 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 complete own set of rules, its own its yeah. own doctrines, and right. That, and, and that's not the only alternative, though. Secular, secular socialism has government ownership of property and ownership of the means of production, and ultimately, it thinks that human labor is a means of production and controls people's work and people's compensation. And so the distribution of income is controlled by the government, not, not by human choice and desire and effort. Um, so that's an abolition of biblical teachings on property, on human freedom, on uh, the uh, freedom of economic systems to work unconstrained by, well, to work in a free market constrained only by a rule of law, which requires enforcement of contracts and abolition of uh, prevention of fraud and things like that. So I still think that uh, freedom of religion is to be protected under the new covenant. So would, would like where the confessions and the, and, and, and where, um, where the reformers went with the use of the law in society have limitations. I've heard some people say, you know, and in, in, into the first, the, not the first four commands, but the latter six. Like clearly, we, you know, when we say "do not steal," we would look throughout the Old Testament law for all of the examples of what fraud looks like and and what actual yeah. theft looks like. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, do not commit adultery. We we would look through the entire the entire scriptures of. Um, what the what the government would do in order to um, protect individuals from different degrees of adultery, and and in that case, lust in our hearts was not punishable by the law, uh, but it is still a moral sin. There are there are uh, acts Sins of adultery. Yeah, there are acts of adultery that are criminal acts of adultery, and then there are acts of adultery that are non-criminal, and and. I still think we look to scripture for the vast majority of, of those definitions. And so I don't think we have criminal acts of adultery in society today. Do we? In, in, well, if you take the idolatry, the idea of idolatry and maybe I'm paralleling that with sexual immorality because the deco the, the, the decalogue, you know, idolatry and covetousness have to do with that that um that sexual ethic would 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 rape not fall under a criminal behavior of adultery okay. or like, like i understand that it may rape be, is criminal, yeah like but, it might um, be technically fornication or um just sexual immorality but would it not stem back to that command do not commit adultery it's in the same general area of conduct, sexual misconduct, but consensual adultery, although there were laws against it in the early colonies in the United States, apparently those laws were seldom or never enforced. And I think that's because in a democracy, which is the worst of all forms of government except all others. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm familiar with that phrase. <laughs> uh, in a democracy, there is not the political will to punish consensual acts of sexual immorality even 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 in a financial sense like because again if we don't if we don't punish any form of adultery then of course that leads us to 
um, fault, like in Canada, we have fault free divorce. So, so there's, there's absolutely no, uh, you know, um, custody privileges. There's no financial consequences for someone who's committed adultery, whereby having some form of punishment by saying, well, look, like, you know, you have a family of five, three children, uh, you went and uh, had sex with your secretary and ignore your, your wife's needs. So when you go to, ha- when you go to have conversations around custody, that is going to affect our, our custody, the, the court's custody decision. Like, um, but that this is with fitness for, for hearing for children. The consideration is fitness for killing, caring for children, not, culp- not moral culpability for breaking up the, the marriage. I, I believe. Well, I, I know that that's what it is now, but is not infidelity a part of your capability for raising children? And th- yeah, th- th- these are the types of it's questions. It's not the infidelity that I... that's punished, right? Now, whether it should be or not, people can discuss. But I think there are there are two categories of things here. One is religious activity, worship of God, teaching of doctrine about God, teaching of moral standards. I think we should have complete freedom there. Luther and Calvin both, Martin Luther and John Calvin did not realize the value of freedom of religion in a geographical area. They still assumed that everybody in Geneva would be Protestant, everybody in Rome would be Catholic. Um, But we have, especially beginning with the influence of the United States when it was founded in the early centuries, um, the advent of freedom of religion that you can have Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Catholics and Jews in the same having worship services in the same block and not fighting with each other and killing each other. I think that was a marvelous advance. I don't think government should enforce any particular religious uh, viewpoint. And so that's different from the old covenant. And then do I think people should worship the one true God? Yes. Do I think that they should avoid blasphemy? Yes. But I don't think government should enforce that. That. I think it's we should enforce it by persuasion. And then there's another category, and that is laws relating to conduct that is morally wrong in God's sight, but that government should not punish or try to enforce, and that would be consensual acts, sexual acts, for instance. There's a sentiment in general among the public in the United States and maybe in other countries that these things are not, they're too private and personal to be regulated by legal standards and punishments. I may be wrong on that, Michael, but it seems to me that that's where the general public has landed in terms of what it will enforce. And I think there's probably some wisdom in that. I think uh, drunkenness is morally wrong. But if you're home drunk, the government's not. If you drive drunk, then you're endangering other people, and there's law against it. There's no law against getting drunk at home and falling asleep on your couch. You know, folks, today in our episode, we were talking about all of the monetary incentives that people have to lie to you. And um, what we're trying to do in many situations is dig for the truth. And 
I want to take a moment to tell you about my friends at Rocklink Investment Partners. The team at Rocklink doesn't invest your money to satisfy a woke ESG goal or fall in line with the World Economic Forum. They invest in great businesses that will protect and grow your wealth the old-fashioned way. Get out of mainstream money and give the Freedom Lovers at Rocklink a call at 905 905- 631-5462 and send them an email at info at rocklink with a c.com. That's info at rocklink with a c.com. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for me, when I look at the old Testament law, that would be the requirement of, of, of two or three witnesses, right? There, there are, again, I, I, I would agree with you, Dr. Grudem, that there are, there are degrees of, morality and there are degrees of um, what will damn me me before God as sin and he knows my heart and the depths of my evil heart and then what will be punishable of course as criminal behavior it seems of course as we go through all of the commandments um, I agree with you that Luther and Calvin were thinking of of a Christianized society but yeah. on the other hand, you know, we, we talked very practically early on about um, like an $80 exchange, for, you know, between you and, a, and an individual over a generator. Like would, would, a, would, a, would an Islamic um, – would, would there be commands within Islam that, un, that in, a, in an Islamic society – would be legal that we would restrict those religious perspectives and behaviors in order to protect the good of uh, of a of of like the United States and Canada. So well, mercy yeah, killings is, or like like yeah. this is where that blasphemy. Sometimes I wonder if we quickly make assumptions on on these matters and blasphemy takes one form, but blasphemy against the Lord in another form would be, you know, um, you know, the, the Islamic law of not being able to proselytize, you know, we have, we, 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 we don't really wrong. Is it wrong for law? Right. So, but our appeal would be back to uh, be back to what on that, on that issue. Freedom of religion. Government should allow freedom of religion. But aren't we restricting their religion as we uh, – uh, aren't we restricting yes. their religion with that with that phrase? Right. And if their religion was – if it went to a cannibalist, a cannibalist society and their religion advocated cannibalism, I think we should restrict that practice. If I went to India in the 1800s and they had a religion that said widows should be burned alive with their dead husbands, I think the government should, because I think that's murder. And so government should prohibit that exercise of religion. Religion is free with respect to freedom, with respect to beliefs and teachings about God and moral conduct. But if you, if you violate the well-being of others, uh, and the moral laws that protect others from harm, then you're subject to criminal punishment. 
Well, I just want to thank you for having this conversation with me. We don't have to we don't have to stay on this specific topic for much longer. I I just find these but conversations it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I, I it's the most fun conversation I've had for several days, oh, maybe good. weeks. Well, <laughs> well, look, if you want to continue, uh, I th- this is a time I I have been. I've been really concerned with the lack of dialogue between uh-huh. us pastors about some of these very practical matters. And with the, with, with the, with the change in culture happening so quickly, I'm deeply con you know, in Canada, I, I, you know, they're maybe 15 years away from having a, the vast majority of the MPs, the members of parliament being Muslims, you know, uh, with our with our immigration policies and and with just good old fashioned political advocacy, the Muslim Muslim community could do uh, quite a significant amount of work to uh, take control into a Canadian Parliament. And so when so these are not necessarily abstract problems like um, we had within the province of Ontario under uh, one of our premiers Dalton McGuinty. We had um, we had a number of Muslim activist groups attempt to make Sharia law um, a, a second independent law system yeah, within the province happen. of Ontario. I hope it does not happen. Well, you know what? Like Actually, a- it was the most surprising thing. Uh, we had a number of other groups uh, uh, speak up and a very liberal premier actually shut that conversation down but again on what premise on on what theological foundation and um when i read you know the london baptist confession the general equities of the law when i read about your perspective on 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 um so many different issues you know within you know euthanasia and abortion and all yeah. these things it's it's is it is it possible that we're being inconsistent when we're talking about religious freedoms or, or I just, I just want to keep having these types of conversations. Yeah. Uh, genuine faith cannot be compelled by government. So I agree, but wouldn't a Christian and even the old Testament view then protect the law? Thou shalt not blaspheme being that's, being different than thou shalt believe, um, does that doesn't that doesn't thou blasphemy protect us from other people coercing us to believe in in false religions? Is no, there not a positive conf- side of that? They, they can pers- they can try to persuade. They can try to influence. They can try to say that there is no god but Allah. But they have to persuade. They they should not try to enforce it by by force of the government. Michael, I've got about two or three minutes left, and I have to I have to go with my wife to a doctor's appointment. That's that's wonderful. Well, I'm so thankful for your time. Um, do you have any particular conferences or works that you want to share with my listeners uh, as a way to uh, bless you? Is there anything upcoming that you want to share? Uh, with our listeners about? I could mention something that 
is its ethics, it's related to this. Crossway Books published a small booklet that I wrote called What the Bible Teaches About Divorce and Remarriage. And I had I had advocated in my Christian ethics book four years ago the standard Protestant view of divorce, that there are two legitimate grounds for divorce, adultery and desertion by an unbeliever. But I came to be persuaded from a search of the Greek phrase in 1 Corinthians 7.15 that when Paul says, if the unbeliever separates, let him separate. In such cases, the believing brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called us to peace. I came to be convinced that Paul means in cases that similarly damage a marriage, adultery or desertion would, and so that would include the legitimacy of abuse for divorce. And that has gotten a remarkably widespread response of thankfulness from many pastors and others that uh, long-term, repeated and harmful abuse is a legitimate ground for divorce, biblically according to 1 Corinthians 7.15. That's, that's found in a little booklet called What the Bible Says About Divorce and Remarriage. So I'd mentioned that as recent work on my part. It will be included, Lord willing, in a revised edition of my book, Christian Ethics, which should come out from Crossway in a year, or year and a half. Oh, that's great. Well, look, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to me about these important matters. And I hope that our conversation is a blessing to people and opens up dialogue. And if it was the most fun conversation you've ever had in the last uh, 72 hours, uh, maybe you'll come back on and we'll talk more. That would be great. Yeah. And I, when, I, when I see John Jefferson Davis, Jack Davis, I have to tell him that he has a very sharp student in you. Well, you know what? I... Uh, one of the best metaphors uh, in that book was like the opening metaphor where the pilot comes uh, pilot comes over the airways of the airline and he says, hey, I've got really good news. And people say, what? He said, the good news is that we're flying at 30,000 feet. The wind's behind us and we're making great time. And they said, but I also have some bad news. And the people yell out, well, what's the bad news? I have no idea where we're going. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That's how he started the book, and I it had me captivated, and it was really helpful uh, yeah. r- r- right from the very beginning. So he's been a friend of mine for, for many years. Okay, thank you, Michael. Good to talk to you. Okay, great. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks okay. for listening. Share this video, and Godspeed to you as we go out and try to influence culture and win people for the uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>